In September of 1961, Betty and Barney Hill were driving home from a trip to Montreal when their journey was interrupted. Two hours later, they found themselves driving down the road again with no memory of how they had gotten there or what had happened in the previous two hours. However, after some sessions with a hypnotist, a story started to emerge, a story that would have great ramifications in the way we understood UFOs and alien abductions. This is all a test. Hello and welcome to the Uncover Up. I'm one of your co-hosts, Nathan Radke, and joining me today in the bunker is Dr. Lee Kunla. Hi everyone, and hello Nathan. So this is the second in a series we're doing about the myth of aliens. Yeah, and especially how that myth evolves over the time from the 1950s to the late 1990s, where when you arrive in the 1990s, it's a very different story than when we started in the 1950s. Yeah, it starts all sort of friendly and fun and amusing, and it ends very dark and disturbing. Yeah. When we say the myth of aliens, we're not saying that aliens don't exist. Because I actually 100% believe that aliens do exist. Sure. I well, mean, without actually having any concrete proof, but a just statistical, statistically, right? Yeah. yeah. The size of the universe when we say the myth of aliens, we're not talking about whether they exist or not. We're talking about the way they exist in our culture. Yeah, the story of aliens, UFOs, alien vis visitations is what we're tracing here. And I think one of our primary sources is an author by the name of Curtis Peebles. And he talked about it really in this sense of the development of a modern, almost religion. Like a, a new... Yeah, a kind of a late 20th century religion yeah. starts to form about the nature of aliens. And when, in our last episode, we talked about one of the sort of early versions of it, the contactees. Yeah. We saw that it was overtly religious in a lot of ways. People were claiming that they had been visited by aliens. These aliens looked completely human. Yeah. They wore ski suits. Yeah. They were from Venus. Right. They were showing up to warn us about nuclear bombs yeah. and to tell us the good news about Jesus Christ. That's right. And we came to the conclusion that, you know what, these contactees, this didn't happen. Like, they, <laughs> they weren't visited by beings from Venus. There was a lot of problems. Like, we know more about Venus now. Yeah. Venus is terrible. And, we, and, and especially Adamski, who was the primary figure of our last episode, is a known hoaxer and yeah. scammer. And, you know, he was having fun. And they were trying to evangelize. So ah. Adamski was a theosophist, and so his aliens were theosophists. Yeah. And then somebody like uh, Dr. Strange's was a fundamentalist Christian, and so his alien was a fundamentalist Christian. Right. So we're going to talk about a later one now. We're, we're moving from the 50s into the 60s, and we're talking about one of the most important, not a contactee story, but an abductee story. That's right. And probably the most important one we have in our society, the story of Betty and Barney Hill. Of course, the question is going to be, were they legit kidnapped by aliens, the way they described? Or, like these 1950s contactees that we talked about, are they just lying? Are they hoaxing in yeah. order to try to make a quick buck? Yeah. What I found, and I think probably what you found, is this is a very different kind of story. It is. And it takes it. It it um, is another step also in the evolution of how we come to understand what aliens are and, and what, what they, they do to us and what they do to us. So in the fifties with Adamski and the rest of them, 
they were visiting us, telling us about the dangers of nuclear weapons and encouraging us to be peaceful and, and, and neighborly. With the abductee stories, what we start to get is, and it starts in a, in a more benign way, but it becomes more sinister and it opens up the door to what we will see later with the animal mutilations and the forced abductations. Is that right? That can't be right. Abductions. 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 The, the forced abductions and this sort of sinister depiction of aliens in the 90s. And this is one of the stepping stones that brings us a bit closer to that story. Yeah, because they're not popping in and saying, hello, I'm from Venus. Would you like to go for a ride in my cool flying saucer? Right. Now it's it's starting to look more like what we consider to be the classic abduction story. Yeah, it's getting there. So why don't we start? Who is it? When is it? What happened? All right. We're going to meet a bunch of characters, but the main characters are Betty Hill. She is a 41-year-old social worker. And her husband, Barney Hill, he's a 39-year-old postal clerk. He works the night shift. He has ulcers. It's September 1961. Barney decides that he's going to pitch a road trip to Betty when he gets nice. home. So what they want to do is they live in New Hampshire. They want to go take a road trip to Niagara Falls. And the idea is they're going to uh, then keep going in Canada. They're going to go up to Montreal. They're going to check out Montreal. And then they're going to drive back. And uh, I did a quick Google uh, search on this with Google Maps. I put in all the stops. And if you were not to stop, the round, it makes a nice little loop around Lake Ontario. And if you were not going to stop, it would take about 20 hours, just slightly less than 20 hours. No, but, no, they're not planning on doing this nonstop. They're going to No, no, this is like leisurely. Right. They're, they're going to check out Niagara Falls. Drop at an inn. Exactly. They're, they're, they're stopping at diners. They're having some food. They're, they're sort of taking in the sights. Uh, I think it's quite sweet, actually. It sounds like a pretty good time. It sounds like a fun little road trip. Although there is something that I think Barney is worried about. And Betty, probably in the back of the, her mind, she's also worried about. Mm. What is it about Betty and Barney Hill as a couple that in the early 1960s might add a little bit of stress to this kind of trip? Barney Hill is a black man. He's racialized. And Betty Hill is a white woman. Now, they're both interested in uh, civil rights activism. And that's actually how they meet. But throughout the narrative... And a lot of what we're talking about is actually comes from a book called The Interrupted Journey by John G. Fuller, in which we get first-person accounts um, when they're talking to a psychiatrist about the things that happened to them. So we hear a lot about Barney's anxiety about being turned away from an inn or being turned away from a diner. He's sort of on the lookout to see how people are responding to him. And it is a strange thing to read today, this real these real racial tensions that are so overt that, you know, somebody could be turned away at a motel and that, that this was a worry. Yeah, now, and, and I mean, those worries he had were not unfounded, sadly, in the yeah, early 1960s. Sure. Actually, Nathan makes a good point in noticing and noting this early on because it is an open question how important that aspect is to the story that follows. Okay, so they go and they see Niagara Falls and they go on to Montreal and they're having a fine time. So somewhere between the 19th and the 20th of September 1961, they find themselves just outside of Montreal, actually already in the States, in a town called Colebrook. And they're at a diner. 
Barney checks the clock and it's 10.05 and he's like, oh, we're going to, we should be home in a couple of hours. Right. So I'm going to read directly from The Interrupted Journey by John Fuller. The clock over the restroom in the Colebrook restaurant read 10.05 when they left that night. It looks, Barney had said to Betty as they got in the car, like we should be home by 2.30 in the morning or 3 at the latest. Betty agreed. She had confidence in Barney's driving, even though she had sometimes goaded him for pushing too fast. It was a bright, clear night with an almost full moon. The stars were brilliant, as they always are in the New Hampshire mountains on a cloudless night, when starshine seems to illuminate the tops of the peaks with a strange incandescence. This is the beginning of where things start to get weird. The time of 10.05 is going to turn out to be vitally important, and also the duration which Barney thinks it's going to take to get home. I checked. How far is it? Again, Google Maps. How far is it from Colebrook to New Hampshire? Now, of course, they didn't give us their home address, so I'm not sure where in New Hampshire they live, but okay. It's two hours and 40 minutes. So so his estimation in a 1960s car at night seems kind of reasonable, I guess. Yeah, they're not gunning it necessarily. They yeah. don't have anywhere to be urgently. Maybe they're going to take in the sights. Maybe they'll stop again for a coffee. But, you know, you, you're, you're getting the sense they've almost made it home now. Yeah. This is really the last leg of the journey. So they, they get into the car and they start driving. And then sometime around 11 p.m., Betty sees something in the sky. Now, it's not clear what she sees. But at first, it looks like maybe a celestial body. Like, it's, it's not overwhelming. It's not something obviously UFO or weird. It starts out like kind of a star-like object. Maybe it's a plane. Yeah, it's not entirely clear. And she keeps watching it. And she starts getting suspicious about what this object is. Barney, throughout the whole narrative, is desperately looking for straightforward, matter-of-fact explanations. So he takes one look at it, and he's like, oh, it's a passenger plane. Yeah. They keep seeing this object, and Barney starts to muse that, well, okay, maybe it's not a commercial airplane. Maybe it's a military airplane. And it's, it's moving a bit weird. They're not sure, is it maybe following them, potentially? But they're driving through a, quite a wooded area, so it's also not entirely, you know, they're not always able to it's get... Sort of, it sort of peeks out from behind uh, the, the trees now and then. Exactly. But it does seem to be following them, and it also doesn't seem to be making the kind of noise that you would associate with ah. a helicopter or an airplane. Yeah, that is something that Barney notes, is that it's eerily silent. So again, from the interrupted journey. Betty, in the passenger seat, kept it in view as they moved down Route 3. It seemed to her that it was getting bigger and brighter, and she kept getting more puzzled and more curious. Barney would note it through the windshield on occasion, but was more worried about a car coming around the now-frequent curves of the road. His theory that it was a commercial airliner headed for Canada soothed his annoyance at the fact that he might be confronted with some unexplainable phenomenon. The road was completely deserted. They hadn't seen a car or truck in either direction for miles now, which left them alone in the deep gorges late at night. Some natives of northern New Hampshire prefer never to drive through those roads at night through long-standing custom and superstition. This goes on for a while. And then finally, so they got a, they've got a little dachshund in the car as well called um, Desley. And, uh, That's adorable. Right? And the whole time uh, it's sleeping at uh, Betty's feet. She's in the passenger side of the car. 
But the dog gets a little restless. And so Betty thinks, well, why don't we just pull over to the side of the road uh, somewhere where we can just get a better look at this thing. And maybe we'll, you know, take out uh, the binoculars, which is exactly what they do. So they go pull to the side of the road. And this whole time, there's no other traffic. Barney is wishing that there'll just be somebody who'll show up, especially a state trooper. He wants an authority figure to show up and he wants to point at the thing in the sky and be like, what's that? And the authority figure says, don't worry about it, it's all fine. And then they can just go on their merry way. That's what Barney is really hoping for. Betty is super curious though and is sort of enjoying this and is a bit excited by the mystery behind it. So they pull over to the side of the road and Barney is taken Desley for a pee. Betty is looking through the binoculars and she's getting quite animated. And she says, Barney, come look through the binoculars. And he doesn't want to. Barney's a bit irritated. He just wants to kind of get home. It's late. But he does finally look through the binoculars. So they kind of trade. So uh, he gives uh, Desley to Betty and she gives the binoculars to him. And he looks through the binoculars and he gets kind of spooked. Like he's looking at this. He can't really make sense of it. And he starts to wander off into a nearby field. And he's looking at it and he's getting more and more upset to the point where he kind of turns around, runs back to the car, jumps into the car and says something to the effect of, they're going to catch us. They're going to get us. And just starts to drive. And, and get the heck out of Dodge. Betty is a bit perplexed about why he's so anxious now, but he doesn't want anything to do with this. Eventually, they lose sight of the object, and they get home. They get home at around 5 o'clock in the morning, and they do the kinds of things that you do after a long trip. So they have breakfast, Betty takes a bath, they get sort of um, a late morning sleep, until the afternoon. They both, though, decide that this sighting, whatever it was, is not the kind of thing that they're going to talk about with other people. It's unclear exactly what it is that they saw. Betty says that it was cigar-shaped, that uh, fins came out of it with two red lights on either side. They do decide, though, independently, this was Barney's idea, to draw what it is that they think they saw. And then they showed each other, and it turned out to be remarkably similar. And they nonetheless, though, decide that they're not going to really tell anybody about it. No one's going to take them seriously, and they don't want any publicity. And that, you would think, would be the end of the story. But in fact, it's just the beginning. Because what happens is that Betty is quite excited by this event. And the first thing she does the next day is call her sister. Her sister had seen a UFO in the late 50s. And this was the kind of thing that was known to both Betty and Barney. Surely they would have talked about it over Christmas or Thanksgiving meals, that time that, you know, Auntie saw the the UFO. Her sister tells Betty... Find a compass in the house and and run it over your car. See if anything weird happens. Is your car, quote unquote, magnetized or has something happened? Or is it radioactive? Right. Is it radioactive? She does this and again, comes in very excited, not only 
is the compass responding very strongly to the car, as in the compass needle is sort of spinning, she identifies a number of spots that weren't on the car, sort of like circles. Like little scuffs. Yeah, but you can't rub them off, can't wash them off, and when the compass needle goes over it, 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 it really responds very strongly. Again, Barney doesn't really want to have anything to do with this, so he's sort of, it's kind of adorable. He is ostentatiously denying all of it. Like, he's yeah. just like, nope, I don't want to hear about it. I don't want to see it. Don't need this in my life. When she asks where the compass is, like, I don't know where the compass is, even though he did know where the compass was. Finally, he finds the compass when he gets irritated with her. Again, think, okay, that's kind of weird. But now Betty starts having dreams about the encounter. And we can legitimately call it a UFO in that... Well, there was, I think it's safe to say there was something in the sky that the two of them saw. Right, there which was, they there couldn't was two, identify. two witnesses. Unless we want to say that they're lying, they saw something. And with two of them seeing it, they could, to a degree, like, corroborate. Exactly. So they're, they're, they are talking about it. Betty is now having dreams slash nightmares about it. And she is also talking to other people, not just her sister. She starts to mention these dreams to her coworker. Um, actually, her boss. And her boss does something interesting. She muses out loud that maybe these dreams were in some way related to what actually happened in their sighting. They were about the night in question. They yep. were kind of scary and ominous. Yeah. There's a roadblock. There are men there. There's something with Barney's dentures. I it's, mean, you know how dreams are. They're, they're sort of fragmented and confusing. Right, right. But there was definitely something menacing. Betty gets kind of as uh, obsessed here in the non-technical term. She's not obsessive, but she is getting really kind of interested and curious about this stuff. She goes to the library and she starts reading books about UFOs. And she encounters one by Major Donald Kehoe. Now, he was a major player... No pun it, intended, because he was a major. Oh, that's what you did there. Ah, ah. I really didn't. I really didn't there intend. Literally, it, was no pun intended. No pun intended. Oh dear, he was a major player. But um, Nathan, maybe you could tell us about Major Donald Kehoe. Uh, Donald Kehoe was an interesting figure in the early days of the flying saucer movement, because he was one of the first people who was really trying to convinced the government that this was something that needed to be taken seriously. Kehoe wasn't like Adamski, not, not one of these like scammers who was just trying to make a, a quick buck. Major Kehoe was like legit concerned about this phenomenon, thought there was something to this phenomenon. And as he increasingly didn't get where he wanted to get with the Air Force and with the government, he started thinking that perhaps there was some sort of conspiracy of silence going on from those institutions, and that was the explanation for why he wasn't getting any kind of satisfying answers. So Kehoe, uh, he put out a bunch of books, and he was sort of fundamental in the, the early days of, of Flying Saucers. I've got one here, The Flying Saucer Conspiracy. And in this book, he sort of, he goes over some of the some of the incidents that had happened in the late 40s and early 50s. A lot of those we've talked about, things like the death of Captain Mantell. And he looks at those through the lenses of somebody who's now firmly convinced, no, there are flying saucers, they are alien in nature, and they are coming to Earth. Like in this book, Kehoe argues that uh, we have an episode 
on an incident where a fighter jet was scrambled over Lake Superior to intercept a UFO, yep. and that fighter jet then disappeared. Yeah. Kehoe suggests that perhaps the fighter jet was swallowed up by some kind of large UFO mothership. Right, right, right. That, that's the kind of thing that he's pushing. No. But again, he's doing so honestly. Yep. He, he's, not, he's not one of these scammers that we've encountered before. He's like, no, I think there's something wrong here. And of course, at the time, that was a reasonable thing to think. There had been a lot of pretty weird sightings, although for reasons that us in the future know, a right. lot of them had much more to do with top secret Air Force planes. Yeah. Now, now uh, Kehoe actually goes on to found an organization. And like a lot of other citizen sleuths of the 50s and 60s, this is where this, I think, a different myth emerges where we have the, the citizens who uncover the conspiracy. You know, it's, this is the, the playbook also with the JFK assassination is that if you look close enough and you do your own investigation, you'll be able to come to the truth. So we have the official investigations by things like the Air Force's Project Blue Book, but then we have these citizen, I mean, he was a major, but at the time he's retired. he's retired and this is not through government funds or anything. So he has this organization called NICAP, which stands for? National. Yeah. And something. Something. National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena. There you go. After Betty reads, I think she actually reads Flying Saucers of Landed, she writes Major Kehoe a letter. Kehoe and NICAP as an organization have been quite skeptical about the contactees. They yeah. see the contactees as making a mockery of this very legitimate search that they're interested in um, in trying to figure out what the UFOs are. Yeah, if you're trying to get the Air Force to take UFOs seriously, and there's some jackass saying, hey, I was just at a diner with a guy from Venus right. and Jupiter and Mars, it's like, you're not helping, buddy. Right. You're exactly. not helping the cause. Exactly. So they are at first a little suspicious of this letter, but they send a guy down from NICAP whose name is Walter Webb. Walter Webb was a lecturer at the Hayden Planetarium in Boston and a scientific advisor to NICAP. So Webb comes down basically to check him out investigates their story very closely. He listens to them for multiple hours at a time and then cross-references stuff. And he then makes a report to NICAP, which basically says, look, their story is pretty legit. I mean, at least he doesn't feel like they're scammers. Maybe they got it wrong, but all of the other facts that he is able to corroborate, check out. The moon is where it's supposed to be. Uh, the weather is what they suggested it was like, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So he writes this report, and based on that, NICAP sends two more people to talk to Betty and Barney Hill, C.D. Jackson and Robert Homan. They also interview the Hills. But this is important because now there's another element to the story. Because in reviewing their whole trip back from Montreal, they suddenly notice a discrepancy. They remember that Barney... I'd looked at the clock in the diner and it was 10.05. And he thought we should be home by around 2, maybe 3. And we've checked that out on Google Maps and that seems like a very reasonable estimate, but didn't get home until 5 o'clock. 5 o'clock in the morning. There's some missing time here. There needs is, to be accounted for. There is some missing time. And it's Robert Homan who first notices this. And both... 
Betty and Barney are startled that they didn't notice it themselves. So what happened to those two extra hours? So what happened to those two extra hours? And that becomes the question. In conversation, they decide there's really only one way to figure this out. We gotta get hypnotized. Ah, hypnosis. Barney can narrate up to a certain point and then is so scared he sort of blacks out and doesn't remember anything else. And it turns out that's not a couple of seconds or minutes. It turns out it's two or more hours. So how is hypnosis supposed to help here? Well, if, if you, I mean, this is the idea. If you are trying to protect yourself from something, if you have seen something so terrible that you don't want to remember it, then your mind represses it. This is the theory. And so consciously you can't remember it because you're kind of being protected from that story by your own brain, which isn't allowing you to think about it. The idea behind hypnosis is you move past those guards and you put the person into kind of a state of semi-consciousness. And in that semi-conscious state, then you can access those memories clearly because there isn't all the interference from your brain actively trying to suppress them. That's the, the general idea of it. There's also this theory that seems to go along with hypnosis, at least at this point, that your brain records everything. Right. Your brain that is like a big recording machine and everything that goes into it just, just stays, stays there, there perfectly. It just is that you don't always have access to it. Now, of course, we do have experiences like this. It's not maybe as outlandish as we might be making it sound. So, you know, you might not right now remember your childhood telephone number until I ask you what was your childhood telephone number and you might have access to it. Or there are those memories that seem to come out of nowhere and you're like, oh yeah, that did happen that time when I was five or seven or, you yeah. know. But they run into a bit of a, an issue, which is they don't immediately have access to a trained psychiatrist who can do this for them. And it actually takes quite a while until they finally find somebody by the name of Dr. Simon. And he is already treating Barney for his ulcer, which has been acting up now because um, of the stress around the sighting. And Barney also doesn't see his kids enough from the previous marriage. And so he's got kind of... He's carrying a lot of guilt from that, probably. Yeah, he it, left his family to be with Betty. So he's like, he's seeing the psychiatrist anyway, they decide then eventually that they'll try hypnosis and see maybe something will emerge. Well, something emerges. Oh, does it ever? So the doctor is recording all of this on an earlier version of a cassette tape. And the author, John Fuller, gets access to this. This is almost a collaborative account to get the story straight of what happened and to make it clear for other people who are interested. And so a lot of the book then is basically the tape interviews that happen during hypnosis. And, and they are pretty chilling. Like yeah. if we are to believe these interviews, if we're to believe what Betty and Barney under hypnosis recall in those two hours, something wild happened to them. Right. It's already in the second session that it all comes out. The way Barney recounts it is that after he jumps into the car and trying to get away from the initial sighting that they saw, they are driving and they encounter a group of beings, men, for lack of a better term, on the road, all dressed the same. And 
Betty and Barney are really scared, but they feel kind of compelled to go along with what these beings are telling them. And so the first thing that happens is they're both taken out of their car. And it, again, it's, it's, it gets a bit unclear. It's a bit fuzzy exactly how they are. are they, do they get out themselves? Are they removed from the car by these beings? But at some point, both of them find themselves independently being supported by these beings and then taken into a flying saucer in which there are medical experiments done on them, but of a rather benign nature. So uh, the scariest thing is a quote-unquote pregnancy test where Betty has a needle inserted into her abdomen. Into her belly button. Yeah, but the rest of it is stuff like they take hair samples, uh, nail samples, they kind of like feel their backs and their skin and, you know, stuff like you would get in a very routine physical. And as this is going on, these beings are communicating to the hills in English. That's right. In a very sort of friendly and professional manner. That's right. So I'm going to read a little bit from the transcript of the, of the hypnosis of Betty Hill. Now, at this point, she's on the flying saucer, and one of the beings has like pulled down like a chart. Yeah. Like a, a long piece of paper with a chart on it, which is a star chart. And so I'll, I'll pick up from there. So I asked him, where was his home port? And he said, where were you on the map? I looked and laughed and said, I don't know. So he said, if you don't know where you are, then there isn't any point of my telling where I am from. And he put the map, the map rolled up, and he put it back in the space in the wall and closed it. I felt very stupid because I didn't know where the earth was on the map. I asked him, would he open up the map again and show me where the earth was? And he again laughed. I went back to the cabinet and I put the book down. They had given her a book. And started to look through it again. All of a sudden, there's this noise in the hall. Some of the other men came in, and with them is the examiner. They are quite excited, so I asked the leader, what's the matter with them? Did something happen to Barney? It has something to do with Barney. The examiner has me open my mouth, and he starts checking my teeth, and they are tugging at them. I ask them what they are trying to do. Then the doctor says, what are they doing with them? And Betty continues, they were tugging, pulling at them. They were very excited. The examiner said that they couldn't figure it out. Barney's teeth came out and mine didn't. I was really laughing and said, Barney has dentures and I didn't. And that's why his teeth came out. So then they asked me, what are dentures? And I said, people, as they get older, lost their teeth. They had to go to the dentist and have their teeth extracted and they put in dentures. And the leader said, well, does this happen to many people? He was, uh, he acted as if he didn't believe me. And I said, yes, it happens to almost everyone as they get older. And he said, well, older, what is older? I said, old age. So he said, what is old age? So here we have an account of an interaction, a hypothetical interaction between these beings on the flying saucer interacting with with Betty in this case. Yeah. And it's kind of got that classic sci-fi trope where the alien says, what is this word? Right. Even though they speak fluent English. Right. They're completely fluent in English, but somehow they don't have this concept of old age or dentures. Right. Dentures, fine. I'll give a pass on that one. Uh, The old age, that doesn't make any sense if you think about it at all. Like, if a civilization has conquered age, okay, fine. Even though that's going to cause a whole bunch of problems that, like, how do you deal with overpopulation or whatever. But fine. But you still must know what age is. 
There, yeah, there's well, especially no... if you speak the language. Like, but the concept yeah. is something that is fundamental to the universe. Time is the is is like a process of entropy. Yeah. I mean, it's like it's what is it? Newton's fourth law. Where's Shelley? The second law of thermodynamics. Second law of thermodynamics. It's like a law of the universe. You can't be here and not know about decay and death and age and okay. But well, but I mean, we'll come back. We'll to the, come we'll back, come back to, the to an analysis of exactly. this. Let's let's continue on with the story. Okay, so they both share these really remarkable accounts, and as Nathan was saying earlier. It's quite emotional. There's uh, oh, yeah. times when Barney in particular Barney is, is, is freaking out during hypnosis and, and says things like, I want to wake up now. Like, I don't want yeah. to do this. I want to wake up. The doctor keeps reassuring them they're going to be fine. It's all in the past. This is just a memory now. And they persist. And over the couple of sessions, I mean, it was really session two that was really opened everything up for Barney. Betty seems to go there already in session one. She is once, she, so the, the hypnosis doesn't happen at the same time. And uh, she is already, this is what Nathan just read comes from the first session that uh, she was doing. But the point is, they are, they meet a group of people on the road. They are taken into the flying saucer. They have medical experiments done on them. Betty actually wanted some proof of what is was happening to her. And so she asked for a book and the alien was going to give it to her, but then um, reneged on it because his compatriots were like, no, no, we're going to wipe their memories, and so she can't have any proof of what's happened. So she doesn't get to keep the book, and instead they have their memories quasi-erased, and they find themselves driving back on the road, and they don't know anything about anything and they sort of come to themselves again when they see a sign that is familiar to them a road sign that's familiar to them and then they're oh like we're almost home and then they go home and they get on with their life yeah and so for then the next few weeks and months and even actually years because this hypnotic regression doesn't happen until uh, 64 and this incident happened in 61 they are left with just this sense of a sighting of a ufo and then a blank space of memory and lost time. And of course, that lost time is another element in the UFO lore that then becomes part and parcel of the UFO encounter thereafter. But maybe, Nathan, you can give those of our listeners who haven't been part of this long journey with us through all the UFO stuff, what is our take kind of on alien abductions and why it is probably less likely than likely? There are specific parts of this story that don't seem to make much sense to me. Earlier in, in in sort of the recounting that Betty has, the beings like ask if they can take off her dress with a zipper. Right. So they know what zippers are. Yeah. But then they don't know what dentures are. Right. And they don't know what old age is. Right. They pull out a star map on like a piece of paper. Yeah. Which is something that humans in 1960s would have on a boat. Yeah. But it seems less likely that aliens in a flying saucer are going to like be pulling out pieces of paper that have stars drawn on them. Right. And how would that be in any way helpful to you? Right. A two-dimensional representation of stars from one particular perspective. Right. That would be completely useless if you were actually trying to navigate amongst the stars. Right. The fact that they, again, communicate in English is a problem. The fact that they are basically humanoid with slightly different eyes. Yeah. There's a lot going on here 
that makes me think, okay, this, this seems strange if aliens come down and are wearing uniforms and are very formal and polite and friendly and human. Right. Again, they're, they're basically humans. Yeah. It's more likely, when you're basing it just on an account like this, that something else has happened than there are aliens that visit us in spaceships, have never been detected really, like no mm-hmm. hard evidence besides this kind of very nebulous, very speculative, very um, based on first-person account kind of evidence that emerges. I'd need something more than that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's because of other factors that we've talked about, like the same reason Nathan and I think there's a good chance aliens really exist somewhere in the universe is that the universe is so incredibly large. Is also the reason that they're most likely not coming here because it's so incredibly large that the distances are so vast, like so unimaginably vast. And if you go in a straight line for a thousand years at light speed, which nothing that we have created, I mean, okay, nothing that we have built, no engine can go at that speed. Not anywhere close, not even fractionally at light speed. But imagine. Yeah, like we sent something, the fastest thing that we have going right now are the Voyager probes. And they've been going since the 70s. And they're only just outside of our solar system. Yeah. Like they aren't even anywhere close to any other solar and, system. And, they're, and, they, and that's when like the emptiness starts. Oh, the emptiness. Right? Like, like at least our solar system still got stuff until you get to the orb cloud. And then... The horrible it, crushing emptiness. And then it's, there's nothing mm-hmm. for like thousands of years in all directions. There's yeah. just nothing there. So, you know, maybe a star. <laughs> like it's Eventually. just... It's so terribly empty that I just... I'd need more, mm-hmm. you know, I need more to understand, to offset the, all the reasons why it is so implausible that they're coming. And again, it is maybe potentially possible. Yeah, of course. But to offset the improbability, I would need more than first person accounts. Yeah, especially first person accounts in which you're interacting with humanoids that speak English. Right. And kind of look Irish. Yeah. Uh, like that was one of the descriptions, you know, and has red hair and How a alien. scarf. Uh, yeah. Right. <laughs> so, okay. Which means that they have teeth. Right. Means, I don't, I'm, I'm getting hung up on the dentures. <laughs> but okay, let's... So we don't think that they've been kidnapped exactly. by Exactly. We don't think that this actually happened to them. Do we think that they are liars and scammers? So what do you think? I don't think so. Right. I don't think they are. I, uh, for one thing, Barney, one thing about the scammers and the liars is that they are not shy about getting their story out there. That's right. I mean, if you look at the Adamskis and you look at the Doctor Stranges, they want the publicity. They crave the publicity. Barney was afraid of publicity. Yeah. Barney was living in an all-white town in the 1960s, and he was a black man. He doesn't want to cause attention to, like, fall yeah. on him. Yeah. I mean, that's very clear in, in everything that you ever read about him. Yeah. He was kind of like a bit shy and a bit retiring and also quite worried. He did not seem to enjoy this at all. Right. And when you listen to the, like the recorded accounts, like he seems to be filled with, with fear and terror. Yeah. Yeah. And if you think about the scammers that we know are scammers, there's a couple of things that, that mark them as different from the hills. So one is that usually the scam that we encountered them doing wasn't their first scam. Right. They've like got they, a long track record of scams. They've got a long track record. And there's always an angle to it. Yep. You're going to make some money. 
You got to right? buy my lectures or yeah. like buy my book or like, whatever. Uh, uh, Gray Barker, he was about making a buck, like going to lectures, selling books. Yep. Adamski wanted to make some cash. Yep. The Hills, they're not writing their own accounts. They don't want any part of any of this except to set the story straight because it does get out there and it gets beyond them. So well, certainly Barney doesn't want any. Betty is, I think, a little bit more interested yeah, in okay. that part of it. But it doesn't feel like a scam. It no. feels like curiosity. It feels like excitement. It feels like something really cool has happened, but not like, hey, I'm going to now spend the next 20 years, 30 years of my life lecturing about this, going to you know the college lecture circuit and, and making some money. If we don't think they were kidnapped by aliens, but we also don't think they're lying, what are we left with? What happened then? Well, that's a good question. And I think this was what animated me in my research and I found it a real puzzle. Now, I'm going to give you the answer. And I realize that if I were an audience member listening to this, my eyes would roll so far back into my head that I, I might need some medical attention uh -oh. because it does not sound plausible. My answer here does not sound plausible until you look at the research. So I'm going to say it. I'm going to rip it off like a Band-Aid, what I think went down. But then we're immediately going to like soothe that painful tear in your skin by giving you the research that makes this make sense. What a Be metaphor. Right? Because the, the, the research really is remarkable on this question. And basically, here it comes. Notice he said he was going to rip off the Band-Aid, and now he's proceeding to dance around the ripping no, no, off I'm of just, the Band-Aid. I, I, having, ha having children, I know how the ripping off the Band-Aid works. You get ready to do it. And you count down, and you're like, we're going to do it right. Ah! It's false memories. False memories. False memories. But they both had them. They both had them. This is a lot less unusual than you imagine. In fact, I do this with my students. I, every year when I teach this, every semester when I teach this, I actually implant a false memory in the class. And not only does about so one third to half the students generate this false memory, but it's the same false memory. That is to say, a group of students who don't otherwise know each other and who haven't talked to each other before class go through a very mundane and rather actually boring experience while it's happening and come out of it with a memory of something that did not happen, but they all have the same memory of the thing that did not happen. Huh, okay. Okay, so <laughs> when I was you know, introduced to this idea, it seemed like the explanation of weather balloon or right. Venus. You know, it's one of those things that you can't really explain what happened. So you give some bogus explanation that looks legit, but this is not this. Memory is a really bizarre thing that simply does not work the way we as folk psychologists would have it. Memory you know? is a mess. Memory is a weird thing. But actually, I want to start with you because okay. the memory researcher I got is doing her work in the 90s and 2000s. But you've got a precursor to how this could have happened. And I think it's one that really illustrates what happened with Betty and Barney Hill. Yeah. So by 1977, we've had a number of UFO flaps. And at this point, by the late 70s, part of UFO investigation involves the idea of there's going to be repressed memories, there's going to be lost time, and you can access it through hypnosis. That just becomes like the way UFO investigations are done. Right. 
So now we've got dozens of abductees. Mm -hmm. So we have psychiatrists who, like, they just go around putting people into hypnosis and getting their, you know, their UFO stories. So one of those UFOlogists is a Dr. Alvin Lawson from California State University. And he has a question. Could people who have no abduction experiences and who weren't particularly well-informed about UFO matters tell a realistic story of being abducted by UFO while under hypnosis? Huh. Now, he is actually a UFO believer. Yeah, he's pro-UFO. Right? But he's asking a good question. This is a good question that needs to be asked. Now, he thinks that he will perform this experiment. He'll interview a bunch of people who were not kidnapped by UFOs. Right. And he's going to ask them to tell a UFO abduction story. Yes. And they're not going to be able to do it. Right. Because they weren't kidnapped by UFOs. Right. So he's working with a Dr. William McCall who had already used hypnosis on 20 abductee subjects. So we've got like this experiment seems like it's kind of like got its thumb on the scale. Okay. It's being organized by a guy who believes in UFOs. Yeah. It's being run by a psychiatrist who has been making a living hypnotizing people to get their UFO stories. Okay. This was an experiment that was basically set up to get the response they wanted. Yeah. Because what he wants is to show that, no, hypnosis alone can't generate a story. But they were expecting that result, but they were also using appropriate experimental controls methodology. They were doing it well. They were doing right. it properly. And so, as often is the case when you do science properly, their findings were surprising to them. Okay. They did not get the, the response they were expecting. Here's from Dr. Lawson. What startled us at first was the subject's ease and eagerness of narrative innovation. The subject would talk freely with no more prompting than an occasional, what's happening now? Because what happens is, these people who were not kidnapped by UFOs can all tell UFO kidnapping stories. Sure. And in part, this is because by the 1970s, it was in pop culture. And so everybody has very convincing, detailed stories. Mm -hmm. And it isn't that the hypnotist is like trying to lead them on, saying like, what shape were their eyes? Tell me right. what the instruments look like. The hypnotist is just saying, and then what happens? Right. And they're telling these really elaborate, vivid stories. So they take these stories told by the eight subjects who were definitely not kidnapped by UFOs, and they compare them to the results from Betty and three other alleged abductees. And the experimenters found, quote, no substantive differences, leading Dr. Lawson to conclude that this study has provided evidence showing that imaginary abduction subjects under hypnosis report UFO experiences which seem identical to those of quote-unquote real witnesses. Right. That, that is startling. Yeah. I mean, and that's going to lead us to another experiment, okay. which I, I think uh, sort of builds on this. I mean, Lawson, he took these findings, which were disappointing to him. Yeah. And he took them to UFO conferences in 1977, yeah. where people were very disappointed by them, to the <laughs> point where they're like, he got a very cold reception. People were unwilling to listen to him because right. he was saying, this method that we've been using might be like fatally flawed. Right. If you can just take any rando and hypnotize them and get them to tell a UFO abduction story that's yeah. basically the same as somebody who thinks they've really been abducted, then what are we even doing? Right. Like Good what's, question. What's the difference between a totally fake made up one under hypnosis and this real one? Right. And the answer appears to be almost nothing. Nothing. But then it gets even worse than that. Because throughout the 1960s and 70s, there was another, there was another doctor who was interested in this. Dr. Martin T. Orn a leading authority in hypnosis. He had a 1979 paper. He wasn't interested in the abductee movement, but what he was very worried about 
is how hypnosis was being used in court cases. Ah. Hypnosis may be helpful in the context of criminal investigation and under circumstances involving functional memory loss. Hypnosis is not useful in assuring truthfulness since, particularly in a forensic context, subjects may simulate hypnosis and are able to lie willfully even in deep hypnosis. Most troublesome, actual memories cannot be distinguished from confabulations. Pseudo-memories, where plausible fantasy has replaced gaps in recall, either by the subject or by the hypnotist without full and independent corroboration. While potentially useful to refresh witnesses and victims' memories to facilitate eyewitness identification, the procedure is relatively safe and appropriate only when neither the subject, nor the authorities, nor the hypnotist has any preconceptions about the events under investigation. If some preconceptions do exist, hypnosis may readily cause a subject to confabulate the person who is suspected into his hypnotically enhanced memories. These pseudo-memories, originally developed in hypnosis, may come to be accepted by the subject as his actual recall of the original events. They are then remembered with great subjective certainty. So let's put that into non-doctor language. What's being stated in this passage? Well, it sounds like you actually create memories. Yeah, and you that, might not even be doing it deliberately. No, of course not. Exactly. Yeah, you these memories are created and then they feel to you like real memories, that is to say real things that happen to you, indistinguishable from your other memories of real things that actually happen to you. Especially if the hypnotist or the person being hypnotized has sort of a preconceived notion of where it's going. Right. So in the case of Betty and Barney Hill, you have people who think they've been kidnapped by aliens. They're being hypnotized by people who believe in alien kidnapping, and they just sort of walk down that garden trail together. Right. Nobody at any point is lying. Right, exactly. They're, I mean, they're inventing and creating, but they're not lying. Even Dr. Simon, who does the hypnosis, comes to the conclusion that he's not sure the ep- Production was real, and yet, you know, this is what came out of the sessions with him. So he wasn't even leading them to make that conclusion even accidentally. It's just this is what comes out when you get two people who think that they know what happened to them or have a suspicion are put under under hypnosis and then are essentially trying to come up with an answer for a problem that may not even be there. I mean, maybe that missing time wasn't even missing time. And then once your brain has created that pseudo-memory, and now you repeat it a few times, and you talk to other people about it, and you share it with Barney, and then he gets hypnotized, and then it starts to influence his hypnosis. Sure. Because he's heard the story. Yeah. And according to Orn... The more frequently the subject reports the event, the more firmly established the pseudo-memory will tend to become. Yeah. Because you repeat it often enough, you believe it. Sure. So it's fascinating to me. This is incredible that you can create a story which is completely untrue, and yet nobody lies. Right. And this happened a whole bunch of times, like in cases where we can reconstruct what happened. Elizabeth Loftus is a memory researcher. And um, she has looked at a bunch of cases, also criminal cases, where people have been put into prison for crimes that were later 
uh, DNA evidence and other material evidence was able to exonerate them from. Yeah. They did not they commit did the not crime. The physical okay. evidence isn't there. The physical evidence points to other people. To other people. Some of them who then like confess right. for the crime. So we're not trying to, we're not even trying to exonerate anybody in this narrative. There are crimes committed by criminals. That's that's not at question. But there are also instances where people have spent many years in prison based on eyewitness testimony that again comes from witnesses who are not lying, who mm -hmm. are absolutely telling the truth to the best of their knowledge, but their memory was incorrect. And Elizabeth Loftus has a TED Talk. You can look it up. Uh, she talks about a lot of these cases. But she talks about how this is very common. These, these memories are known as flashbulb memories or flashbulb events. So there are these like big events that happen in history. Where were you when, I, when uh, JFK was shot? Or where were you? Didn't exist. Well, you didn't. But that seemed to be the, the proverbial question for so long. Because right. everybody knew. It was such an amazing, scary, uh, world-altering event that that moment is frozen in everybody's memory. And then later it becomes, where were you during 9-11? And I remember exactly where I was. So researchers are like this. They don't just take our general assumptions about how our minds work. So they actually put this under scrutiny. Do we remember the things the way we think we do, even when it's like super important stuff? You know, what were you doing during your wedding or the birth of your child or, you know, those kind of like big monumental events where you're like, I know exactly where I was mm -hmm. and what I was doing because it mattered so much. The way this experiment goes is that uh, you recount the event close to when it happened, but in your own handwriting. It's really important that it's in your own handwriting. It's just, who were you with? Where were you? That kind of stuff. And then, though, the researchers bring these subjects back at various intervals, weeks, months, up to years after it, and have them recount the event again, and then again, and again, over these long intervals. And what's remarkable is that non-trivial elements of the story start to change. Mm -hmm. I mean, you might get wrong the color pants you were wearing, or whether you were sitting on the left side of the table or the right, but it's not that. It's really fundamental stuff like what country were you in right. or you know who were you with like maybe you were actually with a totally different set of people now again when i say this like this it seems absolutely implausible because memory of course does work in the way we think it does sometimes and certainly my biography is based like my my very identity is based on me knowing stuff about my life mm -hmm. so it can't all be made up. But then again, when you are shown the evidence in front of your face, like this, so these people are shown, they're given the first account that they have written, and it varies dramatically with the story they're telling now about their marriage, the birth of their first child, where they were during 9-11. And then to the point where they, they, they think it must be a trick. Yeah. This can't be, I couldn't have written this yeah. because I got it wrong back then. Or they're like, they can't under, because this is the, the thing about it being in their own handwriting, they start to imagine, well, why would I have told a lie like right. this? I don't understand why I would have said that, because I know for a fact it happened this way. And um, there, there's other ways, too, when other people are involved in a memory, because we might say, but how could people have the same false memory? 
Like if you think back to a friend of yours who you've known a long time, like mm. our senior Vortex correspondent, Matt. Right. Dr. Matt Barra. Right. Him and I went to university together. Yeah. And had all sorts and of ridiculous stories. And I stories. also went to university together. <laughs> exactly. But separately. <laughs> if Dr. Bear and I are talking about something from our university days, him and I will remember it perfectly. And also, because we've been hanging out for like 20 years, our stories will be pretty much identical. Yeah. If we went out and found somebody who we hadn't seen in 20 years yeah. and said, hey, tell this story. Yeah. There's going to be the story that Dr. Bear and I tell, which has yeah. like over the years turned into like a unit. Right. And then this, this new person... Totally different story. Right. And Dr. Bear and I will be like, well, that guy doesn't remember it at all. Right. He's, he's clearly wrong. Because we're not remembering when it happened. We're probably remembering the times we've told the story. Right. Exactly. Which is very different. So we think that when we remember key elements in our biography, we're remembering them pretty much as they happened. Sure, maybe a few details are wrong, but the core is the right, you know, the core of what happened is correct. But it turns out when you look at the research, that's not how memory works. Except that for most of us, most of the time, we don't actually have the evidence for it. Mm -hmm. This also then is something that Elizabeth Loftus notes specifically about hypnosis. And she says, looking at some of these legal cases that she was involved in, she said she noted that people were going to therapists with one problem, anxiety, depression, obesity, something like that. And they were walking out with another problem, which was memories of things that, you know, were able to prove could not possibly have happened, mm -hmm. but felt absolutely real to them. And in some cases really destroyed their lives and, and, and the lives of the people they loved. Yeah. And we'll talk about that specifically when we do an episode on the satanic panic of the 1980s. Because there is so much there that's also related to the use of hypnosis and the implanting of false memories. Yeah. And Dr. Orrin, who we were talking about earlier, like he argued this is dangerous. Memories could be planted by a hypnotist that would then be treated as real memories by the subject after they came out of hypnosis. Yeah. Exactly. Well, although Dr. Simon never thought that they had actually been kidnapped by well, aliens. Well, exactly. Simon, when, when Simon was interviewed and asked, so were Betty and Barney Hill kidnapped by aliens? He's like, no, they weren't kidnapped by aliens. It's like, it's metaphorical. Right. It's, you know, there's some sort of trauma there. They're trying to work through it. I right. don't actually think that aliens came down, showed them a paper map, and like <laughs> took out their dentures. They took out Barney's dentures, but couldn't take out Betty's teeth. Yeah, yeah. So if we were to very briefly retell this story with this explanatory factor in place, we could see that Betty and Barney are exhausted at the end of a long trip and they no doubt see something in the sky. I mean, I follow the narrative up to that point. There's been some stress on that trip because, yeah. because of Barney's fear of how their interracial relationship is going to be encountered while they're out on the road. Right. You put me in a car for a number of days, and by the end of it, I'm really eager to get home, and I'm done. Yeah. I'm like, I'm done now. I don't want any more. It's late at night. You've probably got a little bit of highway hypnosis. Yep. They see something. That's enough data now for both of them to start messing with each other's recollection of it. And they probably did see something. They probably yeah, saw exactly. something in the sky. But here's the thing. In their account, they said they saw the moon. And they saw a bright star and they saw this object. Yeah. Well, the problem is, well, it's not a problem, but maybe it's a solution. At that time of year, they would have seen the moon and two bright planets beside each other. Okay. Jupiter and Saturn. 
I so the thought fa- you were going to say Venus. Not Venus. <laughs> and so the fact that they saw the moon and one bright planet when they should have seen two bright planets right. indicates that they did see two bright planets, but one of the two turned into this UFO. Yeah. And I've had that experience, you know, stargazing with my son at night when I was looking at Venus and it really did look like it was coming towards me. Yeah. And then you're you you at the, driving in a car and being behind trees and then not seeing it and seeing it. Okay. And being late at night and being suggestible. I mean, B-29 machine gunners, bomber machine gunners in World War II would sometimes shoot at what they thought was an airplane with a bright searchlight. Right. What was actually Venus. Yeah. So they see something. There's enough data here already for them to start manipulating each other's recollections of it. Not deliberately. Not deliberately. Betty then contacts her sister. Betty already has an interest in UFOs. Sister reinforces that interest in UFOs. Right. They then, after that, it's reinforced again with the supervisor at Betty's work who suggests that the dreams aren't dreams but are actually a kind of, you know, repressed reality. Betty's already told Barney about these dreams. Yep. And so Barney knows about the dreams. He knows the content of it, which is exactly then what emerges in hypnosis. They then get more confirmation about their experience from like serious figures. The Air Force sends uh, a Blue Book representative who makes a report. Uh, NICAP sends not one, but eventually three different people, all of whom take them very seriously, all of whom themselves are taking notes, are not obviously scammers or or hoaxers or, or perpetrating some kind of fraud. And then they go and find themselves in a medical setting, which really is conducive for this kind of imaginative play narrative to emerge, which then later, this is well 20 years beyond 20, 30, 40 years of research beyond what is happening in 1961, we discover actually can build false memories, can make those memories seem absolutely real. And then this is what is recounted to us and what actually at that time is a best-selling book. Yeah. Like um, The Interrupted Journey is a best-selling book in, uh, in the 1960s. Yeah. And then, going back to our original idea that our society talks about aliens in a certain way and that changes because of pop culture and events and things like that. So this, uh, this event happens with Betty and Barney Hill. That becomes part of an important part of the UFO story. Then a TV movie is made of this event. Right. Uh, starring Estelle Getty and James Earl Jones. Oh, wow. And then, two weeks after that TV show about this abduction comes out on TV, Travis Walton is allegedly kidnapped by a UFO. Wow. And Travis Walton, there's a scammer. Right. He was doing... And we have a whole episode on that, so you can go back and listen to it. And so then, it's like, it's replicating itself. The story starts to replicate itself. It goes back out into pop culture, and then comes back down to the real world. And then they make a movie about Travis Walton. Right. And that goes into pop culture. And then other people see that, and it influences the way they think about aliens. And it's this amazing process of, like, cultural reproduction. Right. The evolution of the UFO myth. Yeah. And we're getting darker now. Right. Because now it isn't friendly guys in jumpsuits coming down to tell you to not nuke each other. Right. Now there's aliens like interrupting your journey and putting probes into your belly button. And and making you forget that it even happened. Making and it causing lost happen. time. 
And soon, as we move into the 70s, things are going to become very, very dark indeed when it comes to UFOs and aliens. Can't wait. But that's coming up next. And then here's the Easter egg. Okay, so because I know what a hard sell false memories are, I do the following activity in my classes. And I'm going to try and have the podcast audience follow along with me. Now, admittedly, it's harder to do in a medium that is entirely audio. It would really help if we had some visuals, but we don't. And you're going to have to use your imagination. This is a false memory by association test. Okay, so I'm going to try and actually implant a false memory, do this with my class every semester. It works with about a third of the students. It can be as many as like 20 people in my class have a false memory. I'm going to read a list of words, and you as the audience, I don't want you to write them down as I read them. I just want you to listen to the words. And then when I'm done, you're going to have to pause, and I want you to write down as many of the words as, as you can remember, Okay. So here we go. I'm going to read a list of words, and then I will tell you to pause, and you will write as many of them down as you can. Bed. Rest. Awake. Tired. Dream. Wake. Snooze. Blanket. Doze. Slumber. Snore. Nap. Peace. Yawn, drowsy. Those were the words. Now press pause and see how many you can remember. Okay, if you did press pause and if you did write them down, you may have gotten a bunch of the words, but that's not really what's important. The question is, did you write down the word sleep? Because if you did... It's not on the list. And if you don't believe me, you can go back and listen again. I won't read them again. But that word sleep is not on the list. But about a third to a half of participants in studies um, who are subjected to word lists like this, which all focus around a theme, will generate actually a false memory that a word that wasn't part of the list was said. And the amazing thing is, it's not just any word. It's, it's, it's not all other words associated with sleep. It's sleep that a lot of people come up with. Now imagine this. Imagine if I run this experiment in class, but I never give them the answer. I never show them the list of words that I actually read out. And of course, being in a lecture, we're not recording it. Now let's further imagine that a group of those students who misremembered sleep being part of that list got together and talked about what they remembered. It would reinforce each other's memory that, of course, three of them who are all talking to each other now, they all remember that sleep was one of those words, but it wasn't. And yet, they're now reinforcing each other around a false memory that they all had about something that didn't actually happen. But none of them are lying. And none of them are lying. None of them are consciously confabulating. None of them are trying to perpetrate a hoax or a fraud or mess things up. They all have a legitimate memory of something that didn't happen. Creepy. 